Welcome to the latest episode of Marketing in Times of Crisis. It's where I, Io Abbas, get to talk to built environment business leaders about how they've weathered a crisis and they share their experiences and ideas that may help others get through it now. Today is Tuesday, August the 11th, 2020. And my guest is Rick Robinson, who is a specialist in smart cities and recently joined Jacobs as a director. We talk about why Rick was an early adopter personal branding, where he marketed himself as opposed to the companies he worked for. We also chatted about the role of smart cities and digital infrastructure in a post-COVID world and highlight some of the potential areas of opportunity as we start to reimagine our cities. He also gives his hints and tips about starting out in social media as he was an early adopter. Before we start, do make sure you subscribe and leave us a review so that more people get to hear about this podcast. And now it's over to the interview with Rick. Hope you enjoy it. Bye. Today's guest is Rick Robinson. Um, Rick, hi. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. My first question for you is, I mean, can you introduce yourself and your role and, and, and what you do? Yeah, so um, Rick Robinson, I'm director of Smart Places for Jacobs. Um, I guess I'm a I'm a techie at heart. I've been coding for 40 years now, believe it or not, since my dad bought one of the world's first personal computers. Um, really? Uh, yeah, taught me how to code on it. So I, I couldn't quite call myself a digital native, but I'm as close as you can be at my age. Um, <laughs> And I guess for the past 13 years or so, um, I've worked in the field of smart cities, which I, I think of as the, the role of digital technology and the impact of digital uh, technology on the places and communities, in, in, upon me, the places and communities in which we live. Okay. And I guess, what do you define as a smart city? I'm going to ask you that question. Yes, very good question. Um, (laughs) I define it in a really simplistic way, actually. I often do it um, visually. So I draw a Venn diagram of two overlapping circles. One circle um, represents things that make cities better. The other circle represents things that technology can do. Um, The overlap is what I call a smart city. Um, The reason I... Yeah, the reason I um, define it that way is it's simplicity that hides great scope and complexity. So, you know, first of all, what's a city or more broadly, what do we mean by a place? You know, that's a really complex question. Cities are complex systems of systems, communities, environment, economy, physical space, etc. You know, so a city or a place is a really complex thing with all sorts of dimensions and aspects to it. Yeah. And what do we mean by better? You know, that's a really deep and complex question as well. Do it's we really mean subjective, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, do we mean economic growth? Do we mean people being happier, um, less crime, more equality? You know, better um, encompasses a lot of complexity as well. And then finally, what do we mean by technology? You know, that's an astonishingly broad idea. Um, you know, arguably the cities that we have today were first enabled by the steam engine that made it possible to power lifts so we could have tall buildings. Um, they were then trampled all over by the internal combustion engine. Um, and nowadays, when we talk about technology, you know, I mentioned my, my childhood growing up programming a Tandy TRS-80. Um, in those days, if you read Computer World and Byte magazine every month, you knew everything that was happening in digital technology. Um, that's so far away from the reality of today. There is so much of this stuff. Um, so, so that's how I define it. 
in a very simple way that tries not to draw too many boundaries, but that also recognises a lot of breadth, diversity and complexity. Wow, it sounds like a really huge, but I guess fascinating and important topic. Um, I guess one of the things um, that I really liked about your approach when we when, when we I spoke to you earlier was that you were saying that in terms of your roles that you've had over your career, you 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 tended towards marketing marketing yourself as an individual, a person, rather than the actual organisations that you work for. Um, I guess my question is, why did you look to take that approach? Yeah, so I guess um, it, it was a realisation that happened when I gave a presentation once, actually well before my days in smart cities, when I was working on social media and what we called Web 2.0 back in the back in the noughties. Um, and I was introduced by a moderator who said some of my past work at IBM on topics such as web services and service-oriented architecture had been really influential on them. Um, and I was just really surprised. I didn't realise particularly that anyone outside the company that I worked for and the direct clients that I worked for had any knowledge of who I was or, or what my work was. Um, and, you know, that was just an observation that struck me. Then a year or so later, when I really started getting into what IBM called smart cities, um, I, I realized that um, I was going to have to try to persuade people to trust me about something very new and in some ways very challenging. Um, and then also, you know, the whole field and me personally, we were going on a learning journey. You know, we didn't really know what a smart city was back in those days. Um, and, you know, I didn't have any formal expertise in cities apart from the fact that I happened to live in one. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a few years learning from town planners, from social scientists, from engineers, from policymakers, politicians, all sorts of people, social entrepreneurs, etc. Um, and I started writing about it on a blog, partly as a tool to, to work out my own thinking, um, partly as a forum to spark debate. You know, if I can come up with some ideas, perhaps people will argue with them and perhaps I'll learn more through that process of argument. Yeah. Um, and partly to, to share it with people. And I, at that point, took a personal decision, A, to do that in a personal capacity rather than for IBM. And I did that because I felt that people would trust what I had to say more if it appeared to come from me rather than appearing to come from a company. Um, and, you know, IBM has and had a terrifically strong brand, but I still felt for something like this that really mattered to the way that people saw the places that they lived in, the communities they were part of. You know, I felt that was going to work better and the, the experience has absolutely been that, that it did. Um, I also um, I, I took the decision to, to not just do it at, um, you know, wordpress.com slash whatever. I bought my own um, domain name, theurbantechnologist.com, yeah. because I felt that was a, a good way of describing what I was about. And so, you know, that, again, was a little bit of branding. Um, so, yes, it was a conscious decision. I'm not necessarily saying I knew an awful lot about how to do it when I started out, but um, it, it did seem to work. Absolutely. How did your company's uh, bosses feel about that? Was there any pushback on that or was that seen as a positive? You and your, no, it was, it was seen as, yeah, it was seen as a positive. And uh, IBM was actually very forward looking on social media or, or its employees were. So, 
you know, in, in the early days when, you know, it was MySpace and Twitter was just getting started. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't remember if you can still do it, but there's a way of finding out what, what number of person you are that joined Twitter. And, and I'm about 870,000, <gasps> something like that. Quite <laughs> a few early. people got there before me, but it's still pretty early. Um, and a bunch of people at IBM who were, you know, really at the forefront of adopting those services um, decided that IBM needed some guidelines about how to how to behave in public online as an individual but who worked for a company um, and so they wrote a set of social media guidelines based on what they thought was common sense. Um, That's amazing. Yeah they, they were then adopted by IBM officially and I think actually um, IBM sent them to the White House at one point um, as a sort of contribution to the US national debate around um, how people and organisations should behave on social media. And so, you know, we were actively encouraged to have our own presence online um, because IBM saw the value that had to the company of having real authentic people making yep. sense on interesting topics. Um, so, you know, providing we you know, didn't get involved in anything untoward and we kept our language clean and, you know, all sensible things like that don't bring the company into disrepute, um, yeah. then it was all supported. And I think that's an entirely sensible way to do it. And I guess what would, what tips would you give to anybody kind of looking to kind of get started on social media if they haven't really used it, I guess, in their personal capacity or for business? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I think um, I saw a great piece of research once in the early days of the, the internet um, I think it was by the Oxford Internet Institute, and they were trying to um, identify patterns in how successful people were in using online tools to communicate. Yeah. Um, and, and what they found was that people who were successful in life, and they meant that quite broadly, you know, happy in their family life, happy with their job, comfortably off, etc., tended to be very organized in how they communicated. So they would use specific channels, telephone, written letters, email, social media. They'd use specific channels for doing specific things. Um, and they found that those, those habits were consistent between traditional communication and what were then the new online forms of communication. And I think that's something that serves really well with social media, because if you look at Instagram, if you look at Twitter, if you look at WhatsApp, if you look at LinkedIn, Facebook, all these different platforms, they, they attract different communities for different reasons. And so, um, you know, I, I rarely talk about work on Facebook. I never yeah. talk about family on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, I'm probably stricter than, than most people in my behavior that way. But what I sort of noticed was I, I didn't start out that way. You know, my Twitter feed was full of everything. It was full of four square check-ins. It was full of, you know, what I just had for lunch, um, what I was watching <laughs> on television at night, blah, blah, blah. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I, I would one of the things I found at that time is if I followed someone I found interesting on Twitter that was an industry figure, let's say, or an influencer in one of the customers I wanted to work with, not yeah. many of them followed me back. Um, as soon as I got really organized and thought, well, Twitter's for this, LinkedIn's for that, WordPress and blogging is for the other, Facebook's for family and friends, um, then all of a sudden people were following me back because, um, you know, I was connecting with people um, in a way that demonstrated I had interesting content that was relevant to them and relevant to the way that they used that particular platform. So, so I, I think that's a really important thing to do. Okay, so basically having a structure and a, I guess a purpose for each channel and what you're using it for. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and I think also, um, you know, having a mixture of stuff. So, you know, obviously 
one of the things I use social media for is to make connections that lead to business development opportunities. Um, yeah. But if everything I tweet or everything I post on LinkedIn has that character, people are going to turn off pretty quickly. Um, so I tend to have a mix of, you know, here is something interesting, relevant, I've read. Here's a retweet of something that I agree with or think is worth sharing. And then occasionally within that are things that, um, you know, are, are more likely um, in, intended to get people interested in the sort of things that I do, that I do commercially. So how much do you tend to post that's your own content? I have, to, I have to say that these days, because life's been really, really busy, for the past <laughs> month, I've hardly been active for months. And I think that that's another thing is, um, you know, have it in its right priority in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you're trying to sort of get through lockdown. <laughs> well, it's, it was more to do with starting a new job and various other things happening at the same time. So <laughs> um, I'm, I'm hoping to get back more active quite shortly. But um, I, I would guess... Probably about a third of it, say take Twitter or things I'd post on LinkedIn, probably a yeah. third of it is is content. So it's an opinion that I've got added to an article or it's something yeah. that I've written, um, but not necessarily in a promotional sense, just in the sense of, you know, if I'm going to ask for people's attention by saying something, then I should be adding some value. Um, Completely, so, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the rest of it would be replying to things or would be just sharing links other people had shared or had happened to see, et cetera. Yeah, that was good. It, it, I think you've got to add value to things rather than just keep resharing them because it's like, well, anyone yeah, can do that. absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I observed, I, I, I think of it as content. And I, I guess this is something that I, again, learned whilst at IBM, which is a very virtually collaborative company. So, you know, I first joined IBM as a pre-university student in 1990, and we already had global online instant messaging. Um, wow. I, I at one point got into trouble by using an entire mainframe capacity to run a, a Facebook-like social collaboration tool for students. Um, <laughs> You're going to make millions. A, well, yeah, I'm obviously a better techie than a than I am a businessman because I'm not one of the richest people in the world. <laughs> um, but, you could have you been know, not the next Mount Mark Zuckerberg. You could have been the original. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, um, all that technology was around a long time ago, actually, and we we got used to using it. Yeah. So I guess it's how you package it, right? Is it is that like anything else in the Facebook vein, or did they do something that was wildly different? Um, I think there's a, a bunch of things. So, so actually, one of the things is I, I think the iPhone was instrumental in, in this stuff uh, and the iPad as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember um, the city of Sunderland, I used to do a lot of work with them and they had a survey of internet usage done at one point. Um, and when asked, do you have the internet? Something about two thirds of the residents surveyed said, yeah, we've got the internet. And when asked, do you have Facebook? They said, oh, yeah, I've got that on my phone. Um, and, and that was, I, th I think they said they were like above 99% of the population was on Facebook. It was something crazy like that. You wow. know, thinking back now, that doesn't sound quite feasible, but you know, many, many more people said they were on Facebook than on the internet. Now, obviously <laughs> the internet enables Facebook, right? But that wasn't there. Oh, they hadn't realized. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that's on their phone is easy. And it was the iPhone with the touch screen and with the always on internet connection, you know, those two innovations together that changed the demographic of people who would use internet services to the point where they didn't even realize they were doing it. Um, around the same time, I noticed that lots of people um, who worked for the local authorities who were my clients were walking into yeah. meeting rooms with iPads. They would never have walked in there with a laptop, with a clunky old keyboard. They'd have had a notebook, but the iPad changed that, it, you know, became a different sort of business 
business tool. And again, it changed the dem- demographic of people who use it. So actually, even if I'd been the best business person in the world and the best techie in the world, <laughs> when I created that online forum tool back in 1990, it wouldn't have succeeded the way Facebook um, did because the connectivity wasn't there. The end user consumer devices weren't there. The familiarity wasn't. So, you know, things have their right time. And that wasn't <laughs> Just checking. Um, So going back to, I guess, to lockdown and I guess um, because you're involved in smart cities, I mean, what's changed in terms of how they're going forward, do you think, post-COVID well? Yes, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? So um, things had actually started to accelerate dramatically well Um, pre-COVID. One of the things I I look at is um, that there's a an economist over in the States, Marshall Van Alstyne, who is a, an expert on what he calls platform businesses. They're also known as two-sided markets. But, you know, things like Facebook, where, um, you know, Facebook don't charge you a, a, serv- a fee for using their service. They create a marketplace on which third-party services thrive. So, you know, games that we might pay to, to, to play whilst on Facebook. And then, you know, Facebook monetize those services. Um, eBay, Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, you know, all of these are similar platform businesses in in some Mm. ways. Um, And if you look at the list of the 10 most valuable companies in the world, then between about 2015 to 2017, um, the number of platform businesses goes from naught to, I think, five or six, depending on how you count it. Um, Seven of the top 10 most valuable companies in the world are now technology companies and have been for some time. So I, I think that shift started to happen around 2015, 2017, you know, about five years after the the touchscreen and the always on um, internet connection for your smartphone, people yeah. figured out the first wildly successful consumer services. They really scaled, um, and so we, we were already seeing a huge change in the economy. Um, and you know, if if I look at it. You know all those examples that I've given. Um, you know they they might lead us to undertake transactions that in, um, that involve you know physical goods and services and transport. You know we we go and stay in rented accommodation. We get a car journey somewhere. We have some food delivered to us, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The difference is we're choosing which transactions we undertake online in marketplaces that didn't exist five ten years ago. You know that's a really interesting shift. So that was happening already. Um, I think COVID has just accelerated that. Um, And, you know, in particular, remote working. So I I was remarking to someone only the other day, actually, um, you know, back in the noughties, at one point, I was managing, I was living in Birmingham, uh, managing a team that was based in Hampshire, France and Spain. um, (laughs) My boss was in Winchester and my second line was in Pittsburgh. Um, You know, I I hardly met some of these people. I've tended to work from home six, seven days a week and I'd travel down to Winchester and stay a couple of days there work in the Winchester office so you know my life then had a lot of similarities to to life under lockdown Um, Mm. so you know a lot of this stuff was possible a long time ago Um, I've also read you know some commentators suggesting that working remotely is only working because we are um, using up the social capital that we previously built meeting and working face to face Um, 
I just think that's a fallacy. I'm working for a company now that's got 55,000 employees. I've only met six of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I met three in my interview process. One's an old university friend and two others who I knew through previous jobs. So, you yeah. know, the other 54,994 of them, <laughs> I'm meeting remotely. I'm building new relationships. We're winning contracts with new customers for work we've never done before. Um, yeah. You know, you can be perfectly creative in this sort of environment. Um, now, I'm not going to say it's perfect. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that I have the space and the connectivity and the familiarity with these tools that it all works very well for me. There's many, many other people who, who are not in that position. Um, and of course, you know, if you talk to schools, if you talk to local authorities, health services, police, etc., you know, the most vulnerable people in our society are precisely the ones least likely to have access to connectivity have a job yeah. they can do remotely, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, a cu- couple of things is, you know, we were, we were in the midst of an accelerating shift towards digital ways of doing things already. Um, COVID has dramatically accelerated that. Um, and it's taught, you know, many organisations that they can do things in completely different ways. Um, but it's also thrown the digital divide into stark relief and revealed that it, actually that's a life and death matter. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm starting to think it is unconscionable that we don't find a way to provide connectivity to everyone. And, you know, by analogy, um, you wouldn't think of building a house without water pipes and taps. Why do yeah. we think of building a house without connectivity and some form of device to access it? Um, so it's, it's a vital service, basically. It's getting to that stage that if you don't have those things, you won't be able to function. Yeah, absolutely. In and, some you know, ways. Yeah, and th- this again is, um, you know, it's an argument that I've been trying to make for some time. Um, it's an argument that is landing more easily through what people have seen as we've tried to cope with COVID-19 and the restrictions it's brought. It's not an argument that's won yet. Um, I, I personally think... Um, you know, we're going to see the absolute transformation of employment over the next couple of decades. You know, there's lots of studies on this out there. Um, some of them at one extreme saying that um, almost everyone's job is going to be replaced by robotics and artificial intelligence. Yeah. And in the future, most people won't work. At the other end of the spectrum of people saying, no, what we're going to do is create millions of new jobs, things that no, we can't imagine at the moment. And yeah. you know, I remember a few years ago hearing that a cousin of mine had left university and started work as a character designer for a video games company. Now, that job didn't exist when I was in college. <laughs> um, and my, my job's been automated out of all recognition. So, you know, I, I used to be paid to go design large scale computing infrastructures to run things like um, online banking and e-commerce sites. Um, yeah. You don't need to pay me to do that anymore. You can go rent it off the cloud in Amazon. Um, you know, the stuff I used to do to design, to configure, it has literally been scripted and automated away. So it's not needed anymore. So, you know, I'm doing something now that's fundamentally different to what I did earlier in my career. Um, the really, the, the real risk in that, I think, is in providing education to people. You know, if the types of things that um, we we can be paid to do change out of all recognition driven by technology, then we need to give people new skills. And that's all the way from primary school through to adult learners all the way through life. Um, And I I think it's really concerning um, that we're not putting that investment in education. Um, My my son's primary school in Birmingham is one of the ones that can only afford to stay open four and a half days a week because it just hasn't got enough money. Um, It certainly doesn't have enough money to, um, to pay for all this new technology. Um, what we have done um, 
in the school that where my son goes to is some of the parents there um, have managed to get corporations to donate free laptops. Um, yeah. But of course, you know, that's in a school where some of the parents are IT directors for big companies. And um, you know how to, get to, to, to yeah, yeah, different communities. To do a bit together. Yeah. yeah, different communities. They will not have some of them that capacity in the parents' community. So you can see, you know, social mobility not working here. You can see it in action. So I think that's really, really important for the future is to get that message across to, to all sorts of people that the economy is really going to change fundamentally and we're going to have to invest massively in education and we're going to have to think really hard about we cl- how we close the digital divide because we've been talking about it for decades but we've not succeeded in doing much about it. And do you see that as those op- as opportunities for built environment um, specialists, so architects, engineers, things like that? What can what can they be doing, or what what could they be tapping into? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So you know, if if you look at one of the big streams of investment that goes into our cities, our communities, it's investment in new property and infrastructure, right? Um, You know, it's an attractive investment because over a sort of 10, 20 year time frame, you get a um, reasonable return on your asset value. And there are, you know, established, accepted precedents there. If you build 5,000 new homes, you're probably going to build a few schools. Um, You know, if you're doing that, then you're going to be creating public space, public amenities, public services. Um, In today's world, surely that should include digital skills programs, public Wi-Fi, digital infrastructure, etc. So, you know, I think there's a really strong relationship between the built environment and technology because technology is simply part of the places that we we live, work and play in, right? Um, I can't remember if it was earlier in this interview or when we were just chatting informally earlier, but, you know, the cities that we have today took their shape partly due to the steam engine, which powered lifts, which made it possible to to use tall buildings. Um, yeah. Then they got trampled over by the internal combustion engine, and we've been living with that for the past 50 years or so and trying to engineer our way out of it. Um, you know, all those consumer services that I described before, where we're now using digital marketplaces to choose who we meet, to choose what we eat, to choose what we buy and have delivered to us, you know, that's digital technology changing physical places. So, you know, you can't separate the two things from each other anymore. Anymore. We have to design both well at the same time. Um, and that means there's a great role for everyone involved in the built environment to be um, influencing the way that digital technologies affect us, hopefully for the better. Okay. Um, so I guess um, I've seen that you've also got a group um, looking at special projects over lockdown, which is, uh, is it called Pivot Projects? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those things where you sort of get involved in something and you look back and you can't quite figure out how it happens. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> it looks really huge. <laughs> it's it's an amazing thing. Um, and, you know, it's a very organically evolved thing. It, it started with um, a chap called Colin Harrison, who was one of my old mentors at IBM in the Smart Cities team there. Um, Colin wrote to myself and Peter Head and a couple of other people with, you know, it's a common observation now, but, you know, Colin was quite early making it. Hey, look at all the um, reduction in carbon impacts that we're seeing due to um, restrictions for COVID-19. We're eventually going to come out from those restrictions. Surely we should take this opportunity to um, to research and find evidence for what some of the benefits of having done things differently are and see if when we emerge from this, we can emerge not back to doing things as they were before, but doing things in a more sensible way that's more likely to um, help us achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals and limit the impact of climate change. 
Um, and Peter and I responded to say, yeah, we should do something about it. So there you go. We'd formed something. Um, <laughs> and we, we kind of made the rest up from there as we went along. Um, reaching out to our contact networks, just of urban designers, scientists, engineers, social entrepreneurs, all, all sorts of people, just to find yeah. out, hey, who wants to try and do something? Um, so it's, it's grown into this enormous thing now. Um, we've, we've got well over 100 people involved in it. We've got more than 20 work streams. Um, it's global, so we've got people in Asia, in Africa, around Europe, in the States yeah. contributing to it, um, all entirely unfunded at this stage. Um, so it's an enormous volunteer effort, but hopefully coming up with some really good cross-disciplinary system of systems thinking about how we can do things differently. And I think it's just crucial that we do so. Um, the, the way of looking at this that just terrifies me the most is um, the, the estimates show we'll probably see a temporary 5% fall in carbon emissions this year due to the COVID-19 restrictions. And of course, yeah. you know, they've been associated with hundreds of thousands of people dying and millions of people losing their jobs. Um, if we're going to hit net zero by 2050 and limit global warming to a reasonable degree, we need to achieve a permanent 5% reduction in carbon emissions every year from now to 2050 without wow. all of those negative um, connotations. That's a really sobering challenge. Um, and, you know, our, our past track record doesn't show we've had much, um, you know, made much real progress on a global basis achieving that sort of change. So, you know, that that's why we got involved in pivot projects. That's why more than 100 people are contributing time and energy and expertise to it because it's just one of the most important things for us to do. It's a brilliant, brilliant project. It's a really good aim as well. And the figures are staggering, actually. You just think, so it shouldn't be business as usual when we go back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so obviously uh, tomorrow uh, the UK is meant to officially announce from the ONS that we're actually going to be in recession. Mm. Um, I guess how did you kind of fare in the previous recession that happened around 2008, 2009? And are there any kind of particular nuggets that you kind of learn about taking things forward from here? Um, yeah, I, I guess that's when I learned that sometimes you have to knuckle down and really do things for the long term. Um, you know, I was fortunate. I wasn't one of the people who, who lost their jobs. Um, I yeah. kept a job. Um, my clients at the time were local authorities. Um, they were going through a, a terrible time. Um, and they certainly weren't spending a lot of money. So it was very difficult to, to win work with them. Um, they needed a lot of help. So, you know, I, I did what I could on pro bono basis, um, but, but just looked to the longer term. And that, that's when I got into smart cities because I thought, well, you know, there's, there's no money around to do normal stuff at the moment. So we, we have to look to, the, um, to what's coming next, what's not normal, be a bit forward looking um, and yeah. find innovative ways to do things. Um, so, so, yeah, and, you know, that was a, a long, hard slog with lots of work and lots of hours um, and occasional rewards for, for a little while until the market started, the economy started picking up again. I guess and catching up with you with what you've already learned, but I guess you had a, a head start from others with that. And, and that, I guess, is where, you know, we, we come back again to 
marketing, persuasion, storytelling, etc. You know, yeah. if I think back to the early noughties when it was my job to um, talk to um, clients about the, the value of social media and Web2 technologies to them, um, frankly, I was left out of the room most of the time. Um, you know, supermarkets, <laughs> telcos, banks, insurers, you know, whoever. Um, Rick, why are you wasting our time with this frivolity was basically the tenor of it. Um, there are still some companies that do that now, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, and you know, I, I think we're probably at a, we're in a similar sort of place today, I think. You know, there's a big debate starting about, um, you know, post-COVID, what do cities look like? What do communities yeah. look like? What does the economy look like? Um, how are we going to um, rebuild jobs? And, and I think there is, um, th- there's a job to be done there. And Pivot Projects is very much on this agenda, but it's part of my my day work as well. Um, Well, we should reimagine our cities. You know, for goodness sake, the steam engine and the lift are hundreds of years old. (laughs) The internal combustion engine is not far behind them. Surely it's time we reimagined places around a different set of possibilities. Um, And I think, um, you know, for a long time, um, people have toyed with the idea of social media enabling things that are hyper-local. If if I give one example of um, a startup that's that's Midlands based borrow club who I think are really interesting they're a yeah. tool sharing service so the, the idea is if you need a tool to put up a shelf or to fix a gate or whatever else in the place that you live don't get in your car and go out of town to buy one find a near neighbor who's got one and who's in and who you can walk around and borrow it from um, and so it's, it's I think it's a fascinating business model or a fast an example it's a simple a concept business. isn't it yeah, but it's, it's got so many features. You know, it promotes walking and cycling over use of cars. It promotes yeah. reuse of goods. It creates social interactions. You know, it has its own business model. Um, it, you know, it's self-sustaining. I think it's an amazing little thing. Um, mm. the, the other piece about it is whilst, you know, whilst it's a very local idea, it fundamentally wouldn't work without internet and social media technologies. I could never have telephoned a thousand near neighbours in pre-internet days to find out if one of them could lend me a hammer, but I can survey that many near neighbours online. And so, you know, it's an example of the way that digital tools can reveal hidden local capacities and opportunities. So, you know, whilst a lot of the time we think about digital of making place irrelevant, we can do anything anywhere. Actually, it also enhances the value of place. And I think that's a really important thing for us to look at. And and I think there are... um, so there are synergies there with the idea of the 15-minute city, which is something gaining a lot of attention at the moment. Um, yeah. you know, this being the idea that everything you usually need is within a 15 minutes walkable journey of your home. You know, you're I've heard of this, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that might mean your place of work isn't where all of your colleagues are. It might be a co-working centre. It might mean that we think differently about how we have goods delivered so that they're not delivered to our home, they're de- delivered to local drop-in centres. You know, all of this stuff is possible. It's not what we were doing before, but it could be an awful lot better than we were doing before. And it's a great example of placemaking, community, digital, all coming together to create a new a new possibility. So what one tip, which is my final question, would you give to business leaders about how to market themselves and take themselves forward now that we are in recession? Oh, gosh, that's a, <laughs> that's that's a hard a one. Um, I, I think... Um, Transparency and honesty um, are things that are 
achievable with much broader reach online than yeah. previous types of communication. Um, I, I can think of a, a great example of um, an urbanism conference um, which had a panel discussion featuring the chief executive of one of the mass house builders. Um, and the audience gave this person a really tough time because they were attacking the, the quality of their developments, the quality of the environments they created. Um, but this person, apparently, I wasn't there, I heard about it, but broke down um, and said to the audience, look, um, I got into this business and made it the biggest business I could because I grew up in a really, really rubbish estate in a really tough bit of a, of a city. My, yeah. my childhood was blighted by the environment I grew up in. I've made it my life's mission to give as many people as I can a better chance than I got. If there's something about the way that I'm doing it, please tell me and help me learn from it. But please don't criticise my motivations because they're quite honest ones. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that was, you know, the, the people who had been at that, who told me about it, had been really, really struck by it. So, you know, It's really I think, honest and brave, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously, it's a particular example and not everyone's got a tale to tell like that. But, no. You know, I, I think um, being authentic and using um, online media to communicate an authentic view of ourselves and why we do what we do for our organisation, that can only be a healthy thing. Okay. Thank you so much, Rick. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. It was a real pleasure talking to you, Aya. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing in Times of Crisis. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your day to tune in. Check out the show notes for useful links, including my website, where you can find out more about everything featured today and how to get in touch. We're a new podcast, so if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe so that you never miss an episode and more people get to hear about us.